Uh, if you're new to Christchurch, um, it's probably worth you knowing that our, our sort of our normal habit is to preach through books of the Bible, um, so that the, the, the Bible is setting the agenda rather than the preacher. And we're doing that. We've been doing that with the Book of Exodus. Uh, and we've come to chapter 20, which is the Ten Commandments, and have slowed down to take them a commandment at a time. And uh, we're on the Eighth Commandment today. And uh, now the Eighth Commandment, very simply, says, do not steal. Do not steal. Now uh, that is a commandment we'll be reflecting on this morning. But the commandments, they're like, they're almost like the, the contents page for, for the, the rest of the laws in Exodus and Deuteronomy. Uh, they're the, the top line, if you like. But, but they're, they're windows into a much deeper path of obedience. And so in Exodus and Deuteronomy and to a, a degree Leviticus as well, the commandments are expounded. They're sort of um, extended, if you like. And so we're going to read um, this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 14, page 158. Deuteronomy 14, which, as I hope you'll see a bit later on, will help us understand in a bit more depth um, how we keep uh, this commandment not to steal. So page 158, Deuteronomy 14, and I'll read from verse 22. Deuteronomy 14 and verse 22. So this is Moses, or God through Moses, speaking to the Israelites as they come into the land, the promised land. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you, so you're not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever, the Lord your, um, whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is in your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow who are within your towns, shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. How do you understand commandments of God? Uh, perhaps you're, you're a Christian, you're used to coming to church, you've heard the Bible taught lots and lots and lots, and you're aware there are different sort of parts of the Bible. Um, how do you feel when it gets to the kind of thou shalt nots? Don't do this. Or indeed the do's. Love the Lord your God, heart, soul, mind and strength. Perhaps you're, you're new to, to Christianity, you're trying to work, work, work out quite what's going on. And commandment seems to be what Christianity is all about. Lots and lots of rules. Do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. God seems to be sitting in heaven with a kind of a score chart. 
a naughty list and a nice list, a bit like Father Christmas. And and the the, the idea is to have more kind of more ticks in the done list than failures on the do not list. <clears throat> it's very easy to, to to misunderstand commandments. Just listen to these words. These are not my words. I read these uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and a guy called Philip Carey, about whom I know nothing. <laughs> but they're just not my words. He says this. He's speaking about a different commandment, not the stealing one, but same thing applies. Like every commandment of God, this is at bottom a kind of permission. Behind everything God tells us that we must do is really what we may do. In that way, each of God's commandments is fundamentally an invitation. What do you make of that? That the commandments are a kind of permission. Thou shalt not steal. Do not steal, modern language. That's permission, Kerry is saying. Now, he's not denying it's also a commandment. Okay, don't mishear me. Okay, so it's, it's never okay to steal. Let's just get that out there right at the beginning. Okay, he is not saying, I am not saying, <coughs> and more significantly, <coughs> excuse me, more significantly, God isn't saying um, that, that it's ever okay to steal. Okay, they are commands. But still carries on to something, I think. And I want to try and show that as we go through. They are ultimately, the commandments, a description of what we now may do, not just what we must do. They are an invitation. Well, let's dive into this one uh, in particular. Uh, It's the eighth commandment. And very simply, do not steal. Two words in Hebrew, that's of no, and then the steal word, no steal. That's it. Well, how do we break this commandment? Let's start by thinking about two ways we break the commandment, which we all do. Uh, it's tempting to think of the not stealing commandment as the easier one. Finally, one that I, well, I can keep. I know the first commandment, don't have any other gods before me, and I know I break that one all the time. Um, fourth commandment, the Sabbath day, I look at my Sunday and I think, goodness me, I, don't, I haven't really kept that. Honour my father and mother. You know, my mum lives a long way away, which is good news for me. Um, you know, down we go. Uh, we get to the, the, the murder and the adultery commandments. And we know that Jesus preaches on them and says it's, it's more than just about whether you stab someone or literally steal someone's wife. It's about anger and lust. And we know we're guilty. And then finally, stealing. If you know the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doesn't preach on this commandment. He doesn't talk about stealing. He doesn't say, you've heard it said, thou shalt not steal, but I tell you. So finally, a commandment we can keep. It's going to be a very short morning, isn't it? Uh, well, bad luck. No, it's not. Although it may be somewhat shorter than last week, just to relieve you. Uh, we all break this commandment. And we break it in two ways. Uh, the most obvious way, the first way we break the commandment is by taking what is not ours to take. Taking what is not ours to take. That is the surface level, very obvious meaning of the commandment. Clearly, stealing is wrong. Children, as you grow up, okay, being a burglar, is not on the potential career list. But actually, stealing is, is something that will become easier and easier for most of us, for many of us. A few of us, I guess, have stuck our hand through the neighbor's window and kind of grabbed the candlestick. But, but think about the internet. How easy is it nowadays to access pirated movies, music, software? Stuff that someone else has worked to produce and sell, 
but someone else has then nicked, robbed, shoved on the internet. And we justify ourselves, well, I'm only stealing from Google. They've got loads of money, it doesn't matter. I'm only stealing from Disney. They're a, they're a sort of evil multinational corporation. It doesn't matter. We justify it, but it's still stealing. About plagiarism. Uh, at school, I, um, for a while, had to do um, music theory. Music theory, and I hated it. Absolutely hated it. And I was rubbish at it. Totally rubbish at it. Luckily, one of my good mates called Willis was an absolute genius at it. Um, went on to be a professional classical musician. Absolutely brilliant. So he would do my homework. Take him about 10 seconds. I would get amazing marks. My teacher thought I was a genius um, until it came to the exam, <laughs> which was slightly embarrassing. Um, but what was I doing there? Plagiarising. Stealing Willis's work, handing it in as my own. Again, many of you are students or you work in academic settings. Um, that the, the ease with which you can plagiarise nowadays. Well, it's only got bigger and bigger, or easier and easier, I suppose, uh, with the internet, hasn't it? Uh, actually, stealing is, is something that, that, that is very easy to do or very easy to be tempted by. Uh, we fiddle our tax return or our expenses. Or we steal not exactly by taking money, but we steal by going to work, being lazy, um, taking extra breaks, uh, working from home, we tell our boss, and just have a little break for watching the first half of the football or a little break for a coffee, 10 minutes after my last little break for coffee. And essentially, we're, we're stealing. I'm being paid a certain amount of money to do a certain amount of hours work, and I'm just not doing it. Uh, in fact, once you start thinking about it, all sin is theft, ultimately. Uh, you might know. Children, do you remember the first sin in the Bible? God makes this wonderful world, the garden. What's the first thing that goes wrong? Well, Adam and Eve take. They steal a fruit, don't they? There's one tree. Do not take of the free fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I've given you everything, but just don't take that. And what do they do? They steal it. Anytime we sin, ultimately it's a theft. It's a breaking of all the Ten Commandments. And the first three commandments, remember, are all about idolatry in various ways, giving God worship. So when I worship another God, I'm stealing the honour that's, that's owed to him. Now, the fourth commandment is about the, the Sabbath, the day of rest, the day that's meant to be given to him. So when I use it for myself, I'm stealing, stealing a day that is not my own. I don't give my parents the honour that I'm commanded to. I'm stealing honour from them. If I murder... <laughs> I'm taking life, commit adultery, but obviously I'm stealing someone else's husband or wife. And on we could go. In fact, that's true, by the way, of all commandments. If you you follow any one commandment, take it and dig and dig and dig, it'll lead you to all the others. And that's deliberate because we're such geniuses at convincing ourselves we're not that bad, really, that that actually we, we need all these different perspectives to get at the facts that ultimately we all love running away from God. So one way you can break the commandment is by taking what's not yours to take. But there's a second way, which which perhaps is even more common. The second way you can break the commandment is by keeping what's not yours to keep. Let me say that again. By keeping what's not yours to keep. Uh, We could dig into Exodus and Deuteronomy and see that, that there's all sorts of concern for kind of basically dodgy dealing. A classic example comes up several times is the idea that 
um, you, you must not fiddle the weights and measures. Again, children, have you ever seen old-fashioned scales, weighing scales, like your kind of granny hat? Now, my mum had some of these in the kitchen when we were little, before digital things. And, um, and you'd put a weight on one side. And, you know, maybe it's six ounces. You put a six-ounce weight on one side, and you're trying to work out six ounces of flour. And so you pour flour in until it balances out. Now, imagine if you're in a shop and you're selling flour. or in ancient Israel. You're selling flour. If you produce the weight and it says six ounces on it, and the customer comes in and says six ounces, please, and you put your six-ounce weight on it and pour the flour, but actually you've swizzled it and it only weighs five ounces, then you're stealing. You're stealing from the person who thinks they're buying six ounces. You're withholding what you ought to have given. Not many of us run sweet shops or flower shops, probably even fewer. But, but it's possible to steal from God as well. Uh, right at the end of the Old Testament, uh, the last of the prophets, at least as they're arranged in our Bibles, uh, the prophet Malachi. Um, he comes, he's speaking for God, and in Malachi 3, uh, he says this. Uh, Will man rob God? It's Malachi 3.8. Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? Hear the conversation. God says, you're robbing me. And the, the, the Israelites say back to God, robbing you, we're not. You know, we haven't snuck into the temple and pinched your holy candlestick or pinched the bread on the table or nicked the Ten Commandments. Or How are we robbing you, God? Listen how he goes on. How have, we, how have we robbed you? God's reply, in your tithes and contributions. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in the house. How are you robbing me? I'll tell you, says God. I've told you, you're meant to give, you're meant to tithe, and you're not. In other words, you are keeping what is not yours to keep. That's why we read the Deuteronomy 14 passage, if that's still open on your lap in front of you. And part of what it meant for God's people uh, to, to worship him, to serve him, throughout the days of the Old Testament, was that they would give... Various tithes. Now, a tithe is literally a 10%. Okay, children, so imagine um, a cake cut into 10 slices. You had to give one to God. The tithe is 10%. And it's actually quite hard to work out um, how many different kind of tithes there were in the Old Testament. Uh, on, on one reading of Deuteronomy 14... There are, there are three different ones. There's the regular one that you read out in, in verse 22. Tithe the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. So that's 10% of your, of your, your grain or whatever it is you produce. Every year is, is given. But it seems that every other year, or sorry, every third year, so verse 28, at the end of every three years, you bring out another tithe, which is particularly aimed at caring for the poor, those who need it. And it may be that in the middle there, in verse 26, there's another tithe, a kind of particular kind of rejoicing tithe, a kind of coming to God and having a party kind of tithe. Um, estimates vary, depends slightly how you stick all this together, and we're not going to stop and kind of get into the weeds this morning. Estimates vary a little bit, but, but a, a sort of very conservative estimate is that an Israelite each year would give, on average, 15% of his, of his increase. So not 15% of his stuff, so no crops grow that year, no sheep are born, all the rest of it. You haven't got any increase. It's not taking away. 
but 15% of the increase. That's a conservative estimate. It ranges up, some people think, up to about 23 24%. Either way, wherever you fall on that spectrum, you can see that a large part of um, the Israelites' kind of worship to God was using their increase, using their, their increase in, in, in crops, sheep, milk, whatever it is, and giving them away in various ways. Now, you may know that in the New Testament, there is no explicit talk about a tithe. You won't find anywhere in the New Testament, Paul or Peter or John or Jesus even, saying, now, as a Christian, you must tithe. Take 10% of your income and you know, give it each year. And that's led some people to say, well, you don't need to worry about that now. It's just up to you. Give what you want. It is a tricky one, to be fair. But, but... Uh, one of the ways I think we're meant to work out kind of the, the pattern of life as Christians uh, in our current era is, is, is not just by looking at what we're explicitly commanded to do in the New Testament, although obviously that's part of it, but, but we're also saying, well, are there patterns that have always applied to God's people, even before these laws of, of Moses? So yes, Moses comes along and the Israelites come to Mount Sinai, they're given the Ten Commandments, they're given the books of Leviticus, Deuteronomy, uh, Exodus. And for a while, there are all sorts of strange laws that we wonder about. You know, don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. What am I meant to do with that? Okay. Don't know. That's for another day. Um, don't wear clothes of mixed fabrics. What am I meant to do with that? Don't eat pork. Don't eat prawns. Now, we know that many of those laws pass away, but we know that not all of them pass away. So when Moses says, don't murder, no one walks around saying, well, it's kind of an Old Testament one, isn't it? Some of the laws that Moses gives are not, if you like, new at Mount Sinai. They were there beforehand, and they're thereafter. Now, it's really obvious to spot if they're thereafter if they're repeated in the New Testament. Okay? So we know in the New Testament we're told not to commit adultery. But sometimes it's harder. Where in the New Testament does it say you're not allowed to marry your sister? Nowhere. Does that mean it is okay to marry your sister? Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. Why not? Or how do we know that? Because it's spelt out in the Old Testament. It's, an, it's, it's part of what's called God's moral law. If, in other words, it's a, it's, a, it's a sort of deepening of that commandment not to commit adultery. In other words, a short summary of all that is, sometimes you need the Old Testament to help you understand what life looks like for us in the new and one thing we see is that even before Moses starts giving all these slightly complicated tithing laws in Deuteronomy, this principle of giving 10% seems to be there. So Abraham, back in Genesis, before the Ten Commandments, before the, Israel, uh, before the people of Israel came to Mount Sinai, um, Abraham wins a battle and he gives 10% to this strange king, Melchizedek, the, the king of Jerusalem. So even before the, the kind of laws come, as it were, 10% seems to be there as a kind of well, what you give uh, to your king. I think that means if you're a Christian and you're trying to work out, look, what do I give? Then that is, a, at the very least, we can say that is a good rough place to start. It'd be strange, wouldn't it, if we become less generous in the New Testament. We've seen more of God's goodness, more of what he's done. And we think, well, I, I'll respond by giving far less than someone in the Old Testament ever did. Okay, that'd be a weird way to think about God's law. 
You can break this commandment about stealing both by taking what's not ours or by keeping what's not yours to keep. In other words, like all these commandments, it goes to the heart. That's a strange thing with the, with the, the eighth commandment, stealing. Um, you could very easily end up giving a sermon on coveting. But we know that's got its own commandment. Okay, so I don't want to do that. But I do want to think a little bit about why we do break the commandment. Why are we um, so quick to grasp things that aren't ours? And why are we so slow to, to, to give what we're meant to give? Are we not more generous? Fundamentally, I think one of the things we need to understand is that money is power. Okay, money is power. Uh, one person says money is power made liquid. Money, wealth, enables you to do things, doesn't it? It enables you to m- make your future more secure. So you think, well, I, I don't want to give away money. I want to keep it because I've got to think about my retirement. I've got to think about um, you know, when I have kids. I've got to think about, you're thinking about the future and, and it's only money that's really going to keep me safe. So I build and build and build. I don't give away. I don't be generous because I need it to be safe. Another person doesn't have that problem, but they like being in control. Money allows you to be in control, doesn't it? If I've got money in my bank account, then I'm sovereign over my life. I can decide whether I go away on holiday to, to France or Skegness. I can decide whether I, I buy a, I don't know, a Tesla or a Skoda. Okay, I'm in control because I've got money, the ability to make decisions. And if I had less money, my choices would be limited. So my control is limited. My power shrinks. For another person, it's just, it's just pleasure, basically. You know, the husband buying um, toys, the husband who's never grown up and is still buying toys, just grown-up toys, you know, tech and computer games and goodness knows what else. By the time you're 20, they reckon most people have seen at least a million TV ads. At least a million TV ads by the time you're 20. And most of them say, buy this and you'll be happy, basically, don't they? Some of them go down the kind of fear route, buy this and you'll be safe. If you have kids, um, the easiest job in the world, some of you are graduating, you want the easiest job in the world, be a salesman, somewhere like Mothercare, okay? somewhere that sells kids' stuff, especially to new parents. Remember walking in for the first time and you need a car seat? No idea. What do you look for in a car seat? And the salesman walks up to you and says, well, you know, various models here. Uh, this one is great. You know, 60 quid, oh, that's really good. Um, if you want your kid to be really safe, you might want to buy the, the 100 quid one, though. Um, you know, there's more padding, more protection, really much safer. But, but if you're not so fussed about your kid's safety, then do, do go for the cheapo 60 quid one. You're like, I'll take the 100 quid one, thanks very much. You know, definitely. You know. That money is power, and we fear giving it up. It's my security for the future. It gives me pleasure now. It enables me to get all the things that make me happy. It keeps me in control. Uh, Martin Luther, the reformer, said, you only ever break commandments two through ten because you've already broken the first one. In other words, when you turn away from God as your God and start serving other idols, my desire for pleasure, my desire for security, my desire for whatever it may be, well, that's why you start breaking the other commandments. And that's what takes us back to that, that quote I began with. Like every commandment of God, they are a kind of permission. But behind everything God tells us we must do is really what we may do. God's commands are fundamentally an invitation. 
Christian, you, you are able not just not to steal, not just not to take what's not yours, but also to give generously, to not grasp onto what is not yours. In fact, you're able to go even further than that and give what you're not commanded to give, but give generously because, well, because God is for you, as we just sung. So I want to finish by, by thinking about two, two ways we're meant to think about possessions. Two ways we're meant to think about possessions. The first is you must realise everything, everything is yours. Everything is yours. Uh, come with me. It's the last passage we'll look at today. Come with me to uh, the book of Corinthians. I'll give you a page number. Uh, page 953, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is a stunning passage. Um, so much so that I think if I just read it to you, you wouldn't believe it was in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 3. Uh, let me just read the last couple of verses. So verse 21. Um, the context is that the, the, the Corinthians are squabbling about who's got the best teachers. Some of them really like Apollos. This guy Apollos, because he's a great orator. He's got the best stories and illustrations and power. Some of them really like Paul, because he's like the authentic apostle. And some of them like Peter. And they're all squabbling about it, little factions. And we're jumping right in at the end of the argument. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Kephas, that's Peter, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. All things are yours. What frees your heart from hoarding what you're meant to give or stealing what you're not meant to take? Realising that you're incredibly wealthy already. Now, in one sense, that is actually literally true for many, probably most people in this room. I don't know you all. So please, if you're not in this situation, you know, uh, don't kind of mishear me on this. But if you, if you earn over £20,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of the world's earners. Okay? Which is many, many people who've got jobs here. But that's not really what, what I'm talking about. And it's certainly not what Paul's talking about, more importantly. Do you see how wealthy you are, Paul says? Never mind fighting about kind of which teacher is yours or whose camp you're in. All things are, are yours. Just step back a minute. Think about God. Um, with apologies to those who were at the prayer meeting midweek. Um, I want to go over some of the ground I touched on there. Before the world began, there's God. What does he lack? Nothing. What does he have? He has everything. Uh, he's a God of love. Father, Son, and Spirit loving one another, as we thought about last week. He's a God of total power. Uh, a God of total security. No one can attack him or hurt him. He's a God of peace. No one can unsettle him or make him anxious. He's not worried about anything. Nothing can hurt him, surprise him. And then he creates. And what does he gain, therefore, when he creates? He gains nothing. Okay, this is really mind blank. He gains nothing. He said, well, I, 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 can't, I don't understand that. 
Don't know. But he doesn't gain anything. Who can give to God, the Bible says? How, how could God ever gain? He is the greatest being that exists. He can't get greater. He obviously can't get worse either, but he can't get even greater because he already is the greatest. He gains nothing by making the world. It doesn't make him more powerful. He doesn't need a, a mighty tower to hide in to keep him straight, uh, to keep him safe, sorry. Uh, he doesn't need uh, to create gold to make him wealthy. He doesn't need to create, I don't know, beautiful valleys and flowers to smell to make him happy. He's got all those things already just in himself. He's not dependent on us. And that's how he's introduced himself to the Israelites in the book of Exodus. Remember the burning bush? We've come back to this a couple of times. How does God introduce himself? He says, I am who I am. That's my name. I'm self-reliant. I don't need you. That's why the flame burnt but didn't actually burn up the bush. I've got everything I need in myself, God says. He doesn't need us, and yet still he creates. Why? Well, not ultimately for his gain. That's how the pagan gods do it in the stories of the, you know, the, the Greek myths and the like. They create because they need servants to, to sacrifice to them so they can oh, have some food and gain strength again. Or, or so they can have worshippers to make them sort of more important on Mount Olympus or whatever it may be. God doesn't need you at all. But that only shows how much he loves you. It is all love. It's all gift. He wants to bless the people he's made. He wants you to share ultimately in his goodness, his love, to know his security, his peace. And that's why I think, oh, that's what underlies Paul's logic in verse 21 and 22 of chapter 3. All things are yours. You say, but they're not. I know how much money is my bank account. I know what car is or isn't parked on my drive. I look around and see all sorts of things that other people have that I don't have. And Paul says, yeah, I'm not, ta- I'm not talking quite about that. You have God. If you kind of reverse that verse. You have God. How do I know? Well, because Christ belongs to God and you belong to Christ. Because you are in Christ, who is the Lord of all creation, the one to whom God the Father has given everything, all authority in heaven and earth, is given to him. Because you are part of his kingdom, because you're united to him, then everything he has is yours. In fact, that's why the Son of God became man, became a human. He didn't need to gain anything either. But he came in order to share, to bless. So if you have Christ, and Christ is God's, then you have everything, because ultimately you have God. And so all the stuff that we add doesn't actually add to us. If you've got God, you've got everything. Uh, I um, I grew up in Dorset, as I occasionally mention. Um, Most beautiful place on earth. God's own county. And um, uh, there's part of the, in fact, a part of Dorset that's not actually that beautiful, just a tiny bit of it that's not that beautiful. But anyway, um, called Weymouth. And down on the beach at Weymouth, there was a guy every year would make these amazing sculptures out of sand. Incredible. I don't know how he did it. I don't know if he's still doing it. Um, I remember one of them was, you know, as a kid, a Paddington Bear one year. There's a whole Paddington Bear scene and all the rest of it. Um, incredible sand sculptures. And he'd make them in, I don't know, May. And they'd be there throughout the summer and people would throw coins and he'd get a bit of a living out of it. And obviously, come September, the winds, the rain, they're gone. 
That is what wealth is like, isn't it? We add, we put more stuff in our bank account, we add electric gates to our house, we build, we build, we build, but we know it's all going to go. You can't take it with you. You will die, and in your coffin will be nothing. There's an American minister called Randy Alcorn who says, we all know materialism is wrong, and he says, but I realised teaching that didn't, didn't seem to work. So I started teaching people. It was stupid, insane. The lie of materialism that you can only be happy, only be secure, only be powerful if you have stuff. It's nuts, he says. It's just nuts. It's foolish. Um, have you ever seen a sort of kid totally entranced by a bubble? I've got a bunch of daughters, and I remember one, one, one of them was sat on the floor, a uh, little baby, and you know, there's some giant bubbles. You dip the big loop in um, fairy liquid, and you kind of wash it through it, and this bubble, amazing, and it, just for a moment, it's totally entrancing. Different colours as the light shines on it, and she, you know, she was sat there looking at it, and then pop, it's gone. And obviously she starts screaming. But when we obsess over wealth and, and riches, keeping what, what God has given us to ourselves or grabbing stuff that isn't ours, we're behaving like the, the child with a bubble. It's just that our bubble won't burst, God willing, for 10 years, 20 years, but it is going to burst. All things are yours because you have God. You couldn't be more secure. Because he is for you now. He's forgiven your sins. He said that he'll work everything for your good, even the horrible things that happen. You couldn't be more powerful, not because you've got much power in yourself. You will know if you've got any sense. You're very weak. But God is on your side. So no one can separate you from the love of God. No one can take you or stop you arriving in heaven and in a future world that will be blissful beyond your imagination. You could not have more pleasure. Yes, life is hard at times. Yes, we get downhearted. Yes, sometimes we're sad. Don't mishear me. But... God has promised you a world of pleasure because ultimately when we see him rather than just know him by faith, then at his right hand are pleasures forevermore, as the psalm says. Everything is yours because you have God. I said two ways to look at your wealth. Everything is yours and therefore, secondly, nothing is yours. It's all just given to you. What do you have that you were not given, Paul says elsewhere? Nothing is yours really, ultimately. You're you're just a a steward. You're holding it for a while, possessing it. You've been given it by God. But you've been given it for a purpose. And the purpose isn't to to build up your own kingdom, but to serve his. No, we have responsibilities. You have responsibilities to your family. It is a good thing to care for your family. Okay, you, if you live in this country, probably you'll need to buy a house or rent a house. You're not going to be able to live outside. Um, you'll need perhaps a car to get to work. So we're not trying to be ascetics, people who give away all their money and think the only way to be a true Christian is to put on a kind of you know, monk's habit and live in the woods or something. I'm not saying that at all. You have responsibilities to your family. You'll have some responsibility to the state. You've got to pay taxes. You've got responsibility to the church. But you are a steward. All the, everything God has given you is for the sake of his kingdom. And so we can be generous. We can give up the bubbles and the sand sculptures because we know God is for us. So yes, don't steal. Don't take what is not yours to take. But also don't hold on to what is not yours to keep. I've got no rules for you. No percentages that you have to go home and apply. You just have to be honest before the Lord. 
and your conscience. But don't believe the lie that anything ultimately is yours. C.S. Lewis says in one of his books, mine is not a real word. You're holding it for a while. You've been entrusted it in order to serve. And that, of course, ultimately is what God himself did. Jesus, we read in Philippians 2, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, clung onto, but he emptied himself, poured himself out as a servant, humbling himself even to death on a cross. God gave himself to show how much he loves you. He has got your back. He won't abandon you. Therefore, your money, possessions, wealth, it is not your joy. It is not your security. It is not your power because God is for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess we're slow to see how much you love us, slow to believe how safe we are in your hands. Our hearts serve um, mammon, as Jesus called it. Our hearts serve the desire for wealth so quickly. And we pray you'd shake us free of it. Give us generous hearts, generous to those in need, generous uh, to the poor, generous uh, to the work of, of the gospel uh, around the city and the world, generous to brothers and sisters in the congregation. And most of all, Lord, would we know that all things are ours in Christ. And would we see how supremely satisfying you are and that with you we need nothing else. Bless us, we pray, with that gift. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.